0: The Hamden County Sheriff's Office is not your average law enforcement agency. Our correctional staff provide a firm but fair approach to corrections as we change countless lives for the better. In the community, Sheriff Nick Cochise's never-say-no philosophy has evolved the field of community policing, bridging the divide between residents and the unmet needs in our neighborhoods. If you want to help make the world a better place while earning a good salary with great health insurance, paid time off, and a pension, please visit hcsdma.org and click join. Join the team
1: to apply today. This show may contain subject matters not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Proverbs 22, 8. I am reflecting on the results in my life and making changes to achieve the effects I desire in my future. This is Lisa Riley. I'm here every Saturday to share stories that shine a light on justice-involved underdogs, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a path back into society and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. This is Lisa Riley here on WHMP, and boy, do we have a lot to share. So we are going to jump right into this conversation. I am so thrilled and excited to have with us this week Hampshire County Sheriff Patrick J. Kaelane. Sheriff Kaelane has been with the Sheriff's Department in Hampshire County since 1977. He started out as a corrections officer. He served his first six years as sheriff and has just recently been reelected to his second term. So we are very excited to welcome our good friend and longtime prison reform advocate, Sheriff Patrick Kaelane. Pat, how are you doing today?
2: Good. I'm, I'm very good. Just looking forward to having a, a good conversation with you. Our office does a lot of things which deals with uh, the incarcerated population and going back to the community. So I look forward to talking to you about that part of the department.
1: And we are going to have you on multiple more times with some of your staff and some of the formerly incarcerated who you have helped, and some of the employers you work with, and some of the community members. So this is an ongoing conversation. We are super excited that you're here with us and going to be joining us on a regular basis to have these conversations. Why don't you start telling us a little bit about, maybe more about yourself, about your department, about some of the programs that you're uh, instituting, how your inmate population looks on a snapshot of a daily basis. So we'll just, that's a lot to unpack right there, but I'll let you take it from there.
2: County is a a unique county and there's five colleges and the population is roughly 162,000 people. Like most people, I came to this business and and started out as a correctional officer and worked my way through uh, many different facets of the facility including being the accreditation manager for our first accreditation from the American Correctional Association. During that period of time it really got the juices flowing on on what reform should look like, and we heavily engaged Sheriff Boyle was a reformist, and then Sheriff Garvey. Uh, was here for thirty two years and and he was uh, a reformist and and an educator and I took the the next step and I'm continuing in that tradition so we believe that you have to have legs to the stool to survive in this life and that's not just for the incarcerated population but it's for all of us if we don't have a roof over our head employment the possibility of advancement and support systems in place, uh, we don't survive very well as human beings.
1: So what does your current inmate population look like on an average daily basis?
2: It it changes in many ways. It changes every day because we, on top of uh, a jail and house of correction, there's also a regional police lockup. So we hold individuals uh, for their first first appearance in court in the regional lockup and so we we see people from all over the communities the the 20 cities and towns that That we service along with the state police. So we see many different people from many different walks of life uh, come through the regional police lockup. Then they may come back from court on a pretrial status after their first appearance, or they may be released. So we never know what that part of the population is going to look like on a daily basis. But we do know several pieces that, that come into play. And one is that a large percentage of the population will have a substance use disorder, and a pretty significant population will have some mental health issues that have exasperated their criminal behavior.
1: And how many people, on average, are in your facility awaiting either a trial or are in for a lengthier time period?
2: The total population is roughly 125 to 135 depending on the time frame but um that is reduced from 3 years ago where we were at 260 so, so we have made significant progress in deinstitutionalization, I guess is probably the, the term that would be used. but I like to use the term decarceration because that's what our goal is here, is to get people back on track. We start working with uh, the population, whether they're pretrial or sentenced, right away to get them acclimated, one, to the situation that they're in, and two, to get them acclimated to the idea that they're going to be going back to society, and how how can we help them go back and be productive citizens?
1: So you're starting re-entry programs from day one?
2: That is that is the plan. Strictly, it's a choice. Every individual that comes through our door, they have an individual choice whether they want to partake in programs or not. Some of the pieces that uh, we have to do is we have to do a medical screening, we have to do uh, mental health type screenings and substance use disorder screenings so that we have a good baseline on who the individual is and what their needs are going to be. But beyond that, if they want to do any type of programming, uh, it's it's simply going to be a choice. Either they want to do it or they don't want to do it.
1: So what are some of the offerings you have?
2: Well, there's many different offerings that, that we have, whether it's uh, academic offerings or vocational ed offerings. Um, or uh, digital literacy, writing. And on top of that, we have programs that are maybe a long-term program, such as anger management. If if you're part of our medication-assisted treatment program, we're one of two county facilities in Massachusetts that is our own opioid treatment center. And we've been certified by the federal government uh, through the DEA to do that piece. And so during that period of time, if somebody wants to be part of the medication assisted treatment program, we give them that opportunity. And then there's further screening that has to be done for that program. But there's also a treatment module that goes with it. Because um, our belief is that uh, you have to have treatment along with the medication.
1: Absolutely. I can imagine that the treatment is a long-term process because you have to have medical staff, correct, to help them through the first week or two of the detox progress?
2: Well, we, we try not to have people detox. To the extreme that you've heard, I'm sure in many of your broadcasts in the past, or in it, throughout the history of corrections, you, you hear about people just, uh, you know, being in terrible shape because they're detoxing and they have nothing to, uh, to fall back on, uh, or very limited. And so we try to avoid that on the front end because uh, that can be catastrophic for the individual. And the goal is uh, to. And medical staff will tell you this all the time, do no harm. So we follow that philosophy and we listen to what the medical professionals tell us to do. So so the piece with especially substance use disorders is very important to how we get the individual back on track. Very few people will choose not to get some sort of a medication that, uh, that will help them stay stable.
1: Do you partner with some of the local mental health agencies?
2: We partner with many outside agencies locally, and we've just started a long-term program with uh, MiraVista for a -a six-hour-a-day program for individuals who are ready to leave our uh, facility These are people that are in our Bridge to the Future program, but those people can go to a a six-hour-a-day program at Mera Vista and get them situated for long-term recovery in the outside community. That's that's wonderful. That's just one one example of of different things. so.
1: So what's the typical length of stay, taking aside mental health, substance abuse, what's the average length of stay?
2: It will depend, and let me explain an understanding uh, of this. Pre-trial populations are those people who have not been sentenced to us, and in the on the pre-trial. Uh, side, those people could be there here anywhere from one day to, in some cases, depending on the criminal behavior, it may be two years before their trial. And and during the COVID situation, that was dragged out with some individuals, not by anybody's fault, but uh, it was difficult to, to get some of those cases processed. But a lot of people ha- were removed from our custody and put back into the community during that period of time. And on the sentence side, it will Vary uh, between three months and six months for the most part in in that sentence population. And those are people who have been through the court system and uh, a judge or a judge and jury have decided that they need to be incarcerated for a, a period of time. And so on the sentence side, we have a short window to work with individuals. So that's why it becomes now more important that we start working with individuals who are waiting trial, because if they get sentenced, then they've already got two months of treatment already. In the process, then once they go to the sentenced population, we can continue to work with them, but they've already got a a good basis and a foundation of what they want to do and and how they want to accomplish getting back into the community.
1: All right. So, Sheriff Pat, we're going to take a second here and cut to a commercial break, and then we will be right back. Everybody stay tuned. Don't go anywhere
0: employment, housing, identifying documents, addiction treatment, education, veteran services, and legal advocacy. They're all part of what we offer at the all-inclusive Support Services Center of the Hamden County Sheriff's Office. We provide services to justice involved individuals as well as the general public with the goal of improving community safety and the quality of life across Western Massachusetts. Don't let life's challenges lock you up. Be a step ahead. For a hand up, stop by 736 State Street in Springfield or visit us at hcsdma.org. Hello,
2: this is Patrick Kaelin, the Sheriff of Hampshire County. If you're looking for a career helping people, The Hampshire Sheriff's Office is hiring in many of our departments. We take great pride in our commitment to returning the men in our care to their communities in better health than when they arrived. Your work will matter, not just to the clients we serve, but also to the people of Hampshire County who rely on us to protect public health and safety. If you're interested in making a difference, please visit the Mass Careers website for more information.
1: Welcome back to this week's Hustler Files. I am Lisa Riley, and we are here with the Hampshire County Sheriff's Department Sheriff Patrick K. Elaine. When you and I first met, you shared with me your reentry collaborative housing program, correct?
2: Yes, I did. Yes. During COVID, one of the things that happened is that we realized that uh, there were some significant needs that needed to happen to get people into some safe situations. And and so we partnered with uh, Massachusetts Department of Parole to get individual beds and and, uh, bedrooms for uh, individuals who were being paroled from facilities but didn't have a a long-term plan. So we started the Rocky Hill Recovery Center to help the Department of Parole, get those individuals out of an incarcerated situation and into housing so that they could then do the wraparound services that we do with our own population, finding jobs, finding job placement, finding housing, finding mentors in the community that would help these individuals get back on track. It's, it's tough for the people coming out of places, uh, jails and houses of correction and, and the state prison system to find a location where they they can get these services. So um, our goal is to put them in touch with uh, all of these outside services it becomes their responsibility at at the Rocky Hill Reentry Center uh, to take some responsibility for where they are and how they how they get to the next step which is usually trying to find permanent housing
1: when they leave your facility they are on parole they are not still incarcerated they are in the deincarceration side of the program
2: that's correct they are not considered part of the incarcerated population at that point in time. So they have uh, individual responsibility and uh, the people that they work with are staff members uh, of my department, but also they work with the State Department of Parole and they have a parole officer who is assigned to them. And that parole officer uh, obviously comes to the reentry center and, and spends time with them and checking in and making sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So it's it's a great collaborative for moving forward with uh, the correctional practices that I see that make sense for this community. It may not make sense for every community, but uh, housing is really hard to come by for individuals coming out of incarcerated situations. So this was a step in the right direction.
1: Rewind a little bit to about how you got this housing going, because I was fascinated by your story that you were able to find some housing, get it rehabilitated, and it was smack dab in the middle, pretty much of a neighborhood, correct?
2: Oh, that I I apologize, and I I probably confused you. Uh, That's that is the Bridge to the Future uh, program, uh, which is which is a program that we run for individuals just coming out of our facility, not not people who are strictly on parole. So the Bridge to the Future House. Yes, I, I, I met with the, the neighbors because they were concerned that we were going to be in this home that was right near them, and we had a lengthy conversation when we first opened up and I, I agree citizens should have some concern it's their neighborhood and and I have a responsibility to keep that part of the neighborhood safe because we're putting individuals into that location but those individuals that are that are in that location are um, are responsible for programming in the community they're responsible to get a, either a sponsor Uh, If they have a substance use issue, they are responsible to work on finding uh, finding employment or going back to school. And then in their spare time, they're expected to keep the house up up to uh, par with the rest of the facility. And and they also have responsibilities to their families and making those long-term commitments to their families and connections with their families.
1: So these formerly incarcerated are not on parole. They're done with their parole period, or they are still on parole?
2: No, they are not on the parole side. They are still technically incarcerated individuals because they are responsible to the Hampshire County Jail and House Correction. So they are at the end of their sentence, and it may be 60, 90 days. It could it could be up to six months, depending on their sentence structure. All of those things have to take place through classification processes, and understanding what their criminal history is and understanding what the, uh, their, their length of stay with us is going to be. Uh, there's, there's many, many factors, and, and we could spend hours talking about them, uh, and I know we don't have that kind of time, uh, but all of those pieces have to come into play to make sure that the safety of the community is taken into consideration when we're moving somebody to an outside program like that.
1: I'm so impressed with the fact that your sheriff's department has this bridge to the future house, because everything I've read over the years is that a lot of empty houses sit in neighborhoods that other sheriff's departments around the country have tried to rehab to be able to put Formerly incarcerated into these houses to give them some temporary housing to help them get back on their feet, and the neighborhoods put up such a stink about it that it doesn't happen, and a lot of these people end up on the street, homeless.
2: Yes, and that was what we were trying to avoid. And I will tell you, just before COVID started, they had had a picnic at the house where the neighbors came in and they visited with uh, with the individuals, and you know they just had great neighborly conversations that you would find in any neighborhood picnic. And we have to get back to that as human beings because uh, that's the only way we're all going to survive uh, is, is to be good to each other and to be kind to each other. And, and so this neighborhood opened up the neighborhood and said, you know, we're we're okay with this, you know. And, and I said to them, as long as I'm here, I will make sure that we do the best we can to make sure that nothing happens in this neighborhood. That's my commitment.
1: That's amazing. And so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to confuse the reentry collab with the Bridge to the Future. They're similar in some ways, though, correct? Both organizations?
2: They are. They are. It's just that one is dealing with one specific type of population and one, is, and one is dealing with a population that is technically free citizens. So it's it's one of those situations where, other than that, the requirements and the necessity is is pretty much the same. Because we, we understand that People coming back to society have to have structure in their lives and help to get that structure. And so that's where it becomes similar in in how we do it.
1: Do you actually drill down on the cost of what it takes to keep a person incarcerated versus getting them into a housing program and how much of a difference there is between those two? Barriers?
2: No, and I, I, I know other states have done that, uh, and and sometimes those, those figures can be very flawed um, because there's so many pieces that come into play. Now, uh, Massachusetts uh, for years uh, had. Um, Uh, They used to call it the cost per inmate, and what does it cost to house an inmate? And they had a specific figure, and I think the last figure was like $70,000 per year to house an inmate in in an incarcerated situation. Now, when you start doing uh, mathematical figures, yes, it may cost less to house somebody outside in the community, but there's also all of those wraparound services that you're providing out in the community, and those are the things that also cost money. And some of it may be covered by MassHealth, um, and some other things may, may not be. And, and so, so sometimes, depending on who's doing the math, it may look different. And, and I, I always get very concerned about that because operation of sheriff's offices has one budget, and the one budget has to cover many different facets of the department, whether it's the uh, civil process department, the regional police lockup, the jail and house correction, um, the two the community justice support center, Triad, so there's all these different departments within the sheriff's operation. And so it all gets lumped into, in many ways, one budget. And so the figure can be flawed when you start to do the math.
1: Understand?
2: That's, yes. That was, that was the long. That was a long answer for a short question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's fine. It's it's an important question because it is something that people are interested in and come up well you know what we are out of time already i hate to say that i could talk to you for hours and hours and hours and i'm going to uh as we move forward through the the oncoming weeks of the hustler files uh sheriff patrick how do people get in touch with your sheriff's department if they have questions or they need to learn more about resources in the community
2: 413 584-5911 is the uh, main phone number for the sheriff's office, and uh, they can reach out, and, and we usually have a person available to answer to literally answer the phone, and/or they can, um, if they go online, they can look up the uh, Hampshire Sheriff's Office, and and uh, reach out through us uh, through an email.
1: Wonderful, and,
2: and all of our all of our postings for uh, for pretty much everything that we've done is is on uh, the web page as well.
1: So. Okay, that's great, and we'll be sharing that over and over again as the weeks go on. I hate to say goodbye, but I have to, and uh, so, I appreciate you joining us this week here on the Hustler Files, and uh, I will chat with you very shortly.
2: Okay, sounds good. Thank you. You have a great day.
1: You too, Sheriff Pat. Thanks. Bye-bye. Don't go anywhere. We've got to close out the show, and
2: I'll be right
1: back with The Hustler Files.
2: Hello. This is Patrick Kaelin, the Sheriff of Hampshire County. If you're looking for a career helping people, the Hampshire Sheriff's Office is hiring in many of our departments. We take great pride in our commitment to returning the men in our care to their communities in better health than when they arrived. Your work will matter, not just to the clients we serve, but also to the people of Hampshire County who rely on us to protect public health and safety. If you're interested in making a difference, please visit the Mass Careers website for more information.
1: As we start the show with a positive affirmation, we like to end the show with an empowering quote. This one comes from an unknown author, and it goes... Contrary to what we may have been taught to think, unnecessary and unchosen suffering wounds us but need not scar us for life. It does mark us. What we allow the mark of our suffering to become is in our own hands. So that's a wrap for this week. Thank you to Sheriff Patrick K. Alain for joining me to have these important and impactful conversations, conversations we hope will activate change, provide resources, and help others find their warrior spirit. You can find this show and all of our Hustler File shows on the whmp.com podcast page and coming soon to your favorite podcast network. If you'd like to reach out to me with any questions or comments, you can email me at lisa at whmp.com. Have a wonderful week ahead. And remember, don't be afraid of your story. It might inspire someone. See you next week here on The Hustler Files.